Father, I give you thanks for the wonderful time in worship, Lord. Thank you for the opportunity to be in this group and to hear Daniel perform the worship song so well, Father, by your gifting to him. Thank you, Father, that Jose was a part of that as well, that we have those men willing to give their time in that way to make possible for all of us the opportunity to come to you in song, lifting up our hearts in worship. Father, what a great relief, what a great opportunity we have in doing that each week. And uh, we thank you, Father, for that. I thank you, Father, for the time in our study to follow. Father, there are churches around this city and around our world spending time this morning with the body of Christ gathered in your name, no doubt, but in so many cases, Father, not in your word, where they should be, where we all should be. Father, you have shined your face upon us and in grace and mercy granted us the privilege, Father, of being in your word here in this fellowship on a regular basis. How often has it been said, Father, that we should not take that for granted, that we should not look upon the opportunity to be in your word as something that should always be there, but rather, Father, see each opportunity as a special occasion. We thank you for that as well, and we give you glory for it. But, Father, in the worship and in the study, we have merely met the means to a greater end. And so I pray, Father, that the Holy Spirit would impress on each of us what the true end is of our worship in spirit and truth. That true end, Father, being to glorify your name, to conform ourselves to your image, and to build your kingdom in this world as you give us opportunity. We pray, Father, that for those things, these means would serve that end. And that in our hearts, Father, we would feel the, the direction, the motivation, uh, Father, even the, the very obligation to put to work what you teach us here. For if we really have a heart, Father, for those who are not in this room, for those who have not had the opportunity to study the Word as we have, a true heart, Father, to want those things would be a heart that would bring it to others as well, to show others the value and the, the matchless gain that can come from a dedicated time in your Word. Let us be a light to the world in that way as well. So be with me, Father, as I speak your words this morning. Let the Holy Spirit speak through me. Allow me, Father, to get out of the way so that only you are speaking. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, chapter 12. We're going to finally, and I think finally may be the right word, finally get it away from what we've been in so long now, which is out of chapter 11 and into the beginning of chapter 12, the issue of Jesus' rejection. Uh, it'll come up again in the gospel clearly, but it's not the key concern for now in the narration in Luke. We're moving beyond that point. And where we go now uh, in this chapter, and it actually goes all the way into chapter 13, is an important topic. And it's one that if you were to look through the gospel record, it receives the most attention of any single earthly issue in all the gospels. More is written on this topic than anything else in the gospel in terms of an earthly life issue. And I think it's also incredibly relevant for the church today, in particular because so many churches today are essentially teaching the opposite of what the gospel itself teaches on this topic. Uh, Chapter 12 and chapter 13 of Luke stand as a glaring rebuttal to the popular teaching in churches today about the issue of wealth. And I hope that you'll see that with me as we go through it today. Uh, If I have... Uh, If you have had the opportunity to hear any of the teaching I did at the 
uh, Wednesday night series a year ago at Castle Hills, you'll know that we touched on the, the issue of money in one of those nights. Uh, chapter uh, 13 of Luke was actually in that teaching. So to some extent, if you've heard that, you'll probably hear a little of it again. But as is always the case, as you go into the Word, the Holy Spirit will direct us in new ways, I'm sure, and give us even greater understanding. So we'll look forward to that. Let's begin in verse 13 of chapter 12, where we left off. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. And he said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbitrator over you? Then he said to him, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Jesus, we already heard many times, is a respected rabbi. He's a respected teacher. His fame precedes him. And as such, he would be expected at times to be able to answer life's difficult questions. No surprise there, right? Men who have the role of teacher or of pastor or in some sense a leader in a church often get people asking them questions of life. What do I do in this circumstance? How should I respond to this problem? So when someone would be embroiled in some kind of dispute, much like this man here, it would be common for him to bring that complaint to a rabbi asking for a ruling. Now, this is different than a judge. They had judges, they had men in their society who could actually adjudicate, who could actually be the one to make a formal decision about a dispute. A rabbi wouldn't have that power, but his influence in the culture would be substantial and it could have the effect of persuading one party or the other to do what was right. So people often turn to their rabbis for that kind of support. And again, it's very similar to what we might do today, right? Two people within a common church, rather than going to court over a dispute, might rather go to their pastor, somebody who could help them through the issues without it becoming so serious a matter as going to court. So this man approaches Jesus in this quick three verses we read. And he asks Jesus to side with him in a family dispute over an inheritance. Uh, I want you to take note with me. It's a short three verses, but there's... A few important details we have to make note of as we pass through these verses. First of all, the man is seeking to bring Jesus into this matter on the basis that he assumes Jesus has some kind of authority that his brother will respect. Isn't that obvious? Isn't that a fair uh, implication of the way this story develops? For some reason, this man thinks that whatever Jesus says will be influential over his brother. Otherwise, why would the point be to bring it to Jesus then? So he ascribes, the man in his own mind, ascribes some kind of authority to Jesus. Otherwise, there'd be no point in going to the man, in going to Jesus at all. The obvious hope here is that Jesus will agree with his own interpretation of the facts, side with him against his brother, and then in some way order the brother to split the inheritance with him. Which means that this man has reason to expect that his brother will do what Jesus says. So he sees Jesus as having authority. So point number one is, this man approaches Jesus with some view of Jesus as having authority in some form. Okay? It's not just a random guy on the street you're asking his opinion of. This is someone that the man feels has enough authority to maybe help him in some way. The second thing to note is that the subject of the man's concern is wealth. Apparently, as you can maybe read into the story, or read into the verses, this man's father must have died and... He had a brother, obviously, and somehow the brother had gained control of the family's estate. And so this man who's come to Jesus feels that as a, another brother, another son of the, of the deceased father, he should have some right, some say over that inheritance, some stake in it. 
But apparently his brother has claimed the estate and is denying him his part. So the man's appeal to Jesus is for him to gain wealth that he feels he's been cheated out of. And frankly, we should add here that this request is probably legitimate. I mean, if you assume the story is correct, if you assume what he says about his brother is correct, it's probably the case that he has a legitimate claim. It probably is the case that his brother should be sharing that inheritance. So it's not as though he's kind of contrived something to help him weasel some money out of his brother. This is probably a legitimate, reasonable complaint. So what does Jesus say in response to this man's request? He asks the man, who appointed me your judge? It's a very pointed kind of response. It's a rhetorical question, by the way. Uh, As Daniel would probably say, it's a rhetorical question, and he didn't expect him to answer it. It's clever. Let me get back on point here. It's clever because it draws the man's attention to his assumption that Jesus has authority. You follow that? By the fact that he asked the question, he's assuming some kind of authority. And Jesus cleverly makes the point, not the inheritance so much, but the point that, why do you think I have any authority? What is it you think I can do for you? And the question then is going to force this man to consider what it is he believes about Jesus. And why it is that he believes Jesus has the capability to solve his problem, to compel his brother to do anything. You could even argue that Jesus is simply asking, why do you value my opinion? Why do you even care about me? We can only assume by what little the Scripture gives us here, and by the way, only Luke records this story. It's the only place in the Gospel you'll find it. So we have to do some assuming here about what this man thinks of Jesus. Perhaps this man sees Jesus as an influential teacher. Uh, Someone who might have the ability to persuade the religious authorities in his favor just because he may have enough respect among his peers for the fact of his good teaching. Or maybe we can assume he sees Jesus as a wise man, someone like Solomon. You remember Solomon threatening to cut the baby in two to figure out who the real mother was? That kind of insightful wisdom in in, in in the moment of a difficult dispute, you know, that kind of wisdom. Maybe he sees Jesus as the kind of person who can cut through and get right to the point and come up with some easy way to break the impasse. Or maybe he just assumes someone with miraculous powers to heal, like Jesus clearly has, is someone who can compel his brother, maybe miraculously compel him, maybe cast a spell on him, maybe do something in that regard to force the issue. Or maybe he's just desperate to seek allies from anyone, someone who can come to his side of the story and be an ally. But even if none of those possibilities is true, even if I've just made all that up, And there's no truth to any of those things. One thing we know for certain by Jesus' response. This man does not approach Jesus because he feels Jesus is the Messiah. He's not coming to Jesus thinking he's God. That's clearly evident by the way he approached Jesus, the focus he had when he approached Jesus, and on Jesus' response. And it's ironic. It's terribly ironic how Jesus responds to him. Jesus says, Who made me your judge? And yet... Jesus is the judge of the world. John 5.22 For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son. Acts 10.42 And Jesus ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the One who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Jesus has been appointed as the Father had authority to do. He has appointed His Son as judge of all, both the living and the dead. Those who die in faith will come before the judgment seat of Christ, judged not for the purpose of whether you're saved, but rather for the issue of measuring your good work 
in this time, measuring whether or not you have done what is called upon, what was called upon to do, and whether you'll be rewarded for it. And then later at the great white throne judgment, Jesus again will be the one judging the dead in the second resurrection. The irony here is that the man asked Jesus to be his judge in an earthly matter, and yet at the same time he doesn't recognize Jesus as the true and righteous judge of heaven and earth. He sees him as a judge in a minor, earthly, insignificant issue and misses, it's like missing the forest for the trees, he misses the big picture, which is you're standing before the one who has all judgment in all matters of eternity. And it would be real easy for us to look down on this man, right? To look at this circumstance and look at this man and have some scorn for him and kind of say, you know, what an idiot. How come he didn't see the obvious thing, right? And as his soul is probably uh, perishing for lack of faith and he's worried about all the wealth that he can accumulate in his lifetime, and then he worries about how Jesus can help him in that achieving of wealth, does any of that start to make you squirm in your seat just a little bit? It did me. Because though I have no doubt about my faith, about my salvation, unlike this man, I have to agree with at least Jesus' point here of why do I approach Jesus? On what basis do I come to him on a regular basis? What is the main motivation that brings me to my knees in prayer? And speaking not for you, of course, but only for myself, I have to wonder how often has that approach been on the same basis that this man's approach was? We can't race by this moment too quickly without first examining ourselves, I think, just a little bit. Because I would tell you that I think perhaps the chief mistake of our generation, and maybe of all generations, is the mistake this man's making here. Not so much maybe in the case of salvation. I think we all understand who Jesus is. We've said that here many times. But maybe in what he's there for us. Maybe what he's there to do for us. Many have heard of Jesus in our lifetime, certainly, and throughout the age... Many have even been raised in families where you went to church like I did and yet remained an unbeliever. And for so many people today, they go to church, even now. And their perspective of who Jesus is is really more dependent on what they expect to receive from him than it is on who he is and what his authority is. It's a what can I get kind of approach rather than what do I do in service. Our culture, I would argue, has largely reduced Jesus to just nothing more than a genie in a bottle. And you've heard me use that phrase before, especially if you heard the series I taught at Castle Hills. But here's what I mean by that, if you didn't already know. When we need something miraculous, and it doesn't always have to be about wealth, granted, but when we need something miraculous, something that will meet our desires, something that will comfort us, something of security nature perhaps, something that maybe builds our egos or takes away adversity, whatever it is we think we need to fix in our life, That's when we rub the bottle. That's when we rub the bottle and poof, we expect Jesus to come to our aid. And when the formula doesn't work that way, we're told it's our fault. Boy, I hate that. If I sound passionate about this, it's because I hate this. Because so much damage is done in the body of Christ by this kind of teaching. When we rub the bottle and it doesn't work, no, it's not our theology that's wrong. No, it's not our approach that's wrong. It's not our understanding of Scripture that's wrong. No, it's our fault. We didn't pray right. We didn't have enough faith. We didn't repent of some hidden sin. Whatever excuse could be imagined has been applied to those who say, well, wait a minute, this this thought that I can just approach Jesus and he'll solve all my problems isn't working. Is there something wrong with your teaching? No, there's something wrong with you. So we try harder the next time expecting better results. And in between those moments of need, 
So often we expect Jesus to just stay inside that bottle and leave us alone until we need him the next time. Don't, you know, don't talk about changing my life. Don't talk to me about what I have to do in my, in my walk. I'm not interested to hear what you have to say about sacrificing myself in service to God. I, I, I don't want to know about how to endure trials and the fact that that is good, not bad. And I certainly can't stand the thought of forsaking the world for a chance to earn treasure in heaven. Treasure in heaven, what is that? All I know is I know what treasure here looks like and that's what I want. Now I'm being kind of excessive, exaggerating here a little for most people, I hope. I don't think we all walk around with that view. But boy, I've met some that do. And you don't get that way in a day. You know, you don't wake up with that perspective of your theology. You have to be brought there by someone who teaches it incorrectly. And I just hope that we know better, number one. Number two, I hope we work to undo that teaching in the church, wherever we find it. And we might want to just dismiss this man as another unbeliever with a bad sense of what theology is and this greedy heart. But look where Jesus goes next. And what really takes place as we move out of these verses and into the rest of the chapter is he stops talking to this man. And now, most convicting of all, he starts talking to the disciples. Which is interesting because they didn't raise this issue, did they? They're not the ones who've come to him, presumably, with a desire for wealth. It was this one greedy unbeliever. But after a quick response to him, he spends the rest of this chapter and into chapter 13 talking to the disciples. And if you jump down, for example, look at verse 41 of this same chapter. Just jump down and look at it. When you read that verse, it's apparent that Peter, even Peter himself, was swift enough to pick up on the fact that Jesus and his disciples are in view here as he begins to lecture on greed and wealth. Not just the unbeliever. God is going to provide them as well as us with some important teaching on on the nature of greed. Jesus says, life does not consist of what we accumulate in this world. We are not our possessions. Even if we have an abundance, even if our world is filled with blessing in that way, that is not who we are. In fact, I would argue that Jesus' statement is especially true for those who have an abundance, right? That person should especially be mindful that their abundance is not who they are. So, how do we know if that's our failing? Well, let's start by defining greed. What is greed? What is greed? Some people would call it a relative term, right? Most people, I think, think greedy people are just somebody who wants more than they want. Somebody's greedy if they want more than us. Like, there's a piece of pie left, one piece of pie left, and someone eats it before we can get to it. That person's greedy. Amen. I heard that. That's right. Uh, one from my own experience years ago, we had a neighbor with a fruit tree in the backyard, but they won't let you pick any of their fruit. What a greedy person. Right? They should be sharing that with me. How greedy. But those are the wrong definitions of greed. If that fits in some general sense what you've always assumed greed to be, someone who wants more than they should, well, what is should? Well, it's more than I want. It's more than how I live. We, we usually create a reference to ourselves when we come up with that standard. Here's what the Bible says. Psalms 10, 10, 3. For the wicked boasts of his heart's desire, and the greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. The wicked, in the haughtiness of his countenance, does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. The picture of greed given in the Bible is someone who spurns the Lord and does not seek him. His thoughts are that there is no God. Now, you could look at that and say, okay, so only unbelievers are greedy? Well... Unbelievers are by their nature greedy, yes. But when we 
fall back into the thinking that typifies an unbeliever, that's when a believer becomes greedy. And what is that thinking? Wanting more than what God intends for us to have. That's the reason why greed is equated to saying there is no God and is equated to not seeking Him and is equated to boasting of our heart's desires while spurning the Lord. Greed is wanting more than God has appointed to us. The best example out of Scripture I can offer you is the nation of Israel in the desert. God was providing them with all they needed through something called manna. But they were greedy. Numbers 11.4 The rabble who were among them had greedy desires. And all the sons of Israel wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt. The cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our appetite is gone. There's nothing to look at except this manna. What God has graciously provided, they spurn. They despised because it wasn't what they wanted. God answered their greed, by the way, with a month of meat. So much so that he says they'll have it coming out of their nostrils. It was greed that led them to want more than what God had determined that they needed what he was determined to provide. That's why you see things like this in the New Testament, Hebrews 13:5. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? The man who addressed Jesus was not content with what God had seen fit to give him. Did he ever consider that? Would we have considered that reading those verses? That for some good reason, God had determined that he would not receive any of his father's wealth? That maybe it was in God's plan that his brother would receive it all? Had he ever stopped to think about that? Well, clearly not. Would we? Now, there's nothing wrong with receiving part of a father's estate, right? We're not giving absolutes for what you should or shouldn't want. That's the first thing we do wrong if we start to try to interpret the issue of greed and money as a series of absolutes. You can't have more than this. You have to give so much of this. You have to do certain things and not do certain things. That's wrong. Because I'll guarantee you the poorest people in the world are some of the greediest I know. And some of the richest people in the world you meet might be some of the most charitable and some of the most godly and vice versa, of course. The problem with this man was his effort was an expen- the effort he was expending here was in trying to get what he thought was right rather than trying to figure out what God wanted him to have. Rather than saying what the writer of Hebrews said in verse 6 when he said, The Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? He was preoccupied with obtaining his wealth. And he was so preoccupied, and here's the point of what Jesus said to the man when he asked him, Who appointed me your judge? This guy is so preoccupied with getting his wealth that when he stood before the Son of God, he didn't ask him about how do I obtain eternal life. He didn't ask him, how can I serve you, the living God? He said, help me get some money from my brother. So his preoccupation with wealth blinded him for the loss of eternal life. And this is not just a problem with unbelievers. And I said this, I think it was last week maybe when I mentioned that Believers are in danger, in my experience, of losing the distinction we have with the world in one key area, and that is in this area of wealth and our pursuit of it. When we become like the world, when we share their goals, when we share their lifestyle, when we share their desires, when we share their pursuits, then how is it we can say we're not like them? In what way are we standing out then? 
It's about a limit in time and energy and opportunity. We only have so much time on earth. We only have so much energy. We only have so many opportunities to serve him. And when we're senselessly spending all that time, energy, and effort storing up treasure on earth rather than in heaven, then we are wasting our time. Biblically speaking, I stand on, on strong ground, I believe, when I say that is a waste of time. Look at what Jesus says next, if, if you think maybe I'm overstating it. Luke 12:16. He told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many good things laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This farmer, we're told he's blessed with the ability to produce more than he needs. That's what, that's what it means here when it says he was very productive. He had fields, he was growing crop, he was reaping produce, but he had more than he needed. And with such abundance, you know, you'd expect somebody in that situation to be pretty carefree, right? I mean, think about it. What if you got paid more than you could spend? I'll try it. All right, I'll try it once just to see, right? That's effectively the equivalent. You know, he's getting paid, if you will, by the produce of his field. That's his income. He can't spend it all in literal terms. He can't get rid of it fast enough. He doesn't know what to do. So what is his approach? You know, it should mean that his life here is carefree. It should mean that he has extra time to serve God, shouldn't it? I mean, if you compare it to our own walk today, if I told you that you could go to work half as much to make as much money, because, see, if you went full-time, you'd have more than you needed. So I'll cut back my hours at work. I'll work half as much and have the same amount of money. What if I gave you that deal? That's what he's facing. So he could have cut back on his work, on his farming, and had extra time to serve the Lord in whatever way God gave him. No. He did what I think we would do more often than not. We'd work the same number of hours and bank the extra money. Woohoo! I'll retire that much earlier. Then I'll serve you, God. You know, how many of us have said that? If I could only retire ten years earlier, then I'd be able to work full-time for God. That's what this man's banking on. And then the foolishness goes a step further. Instead of being carefree because of the abundance of God, he becomes preoccupied with it to the point where he spends all his time figuring out how to store it. You know, when you hear this say, I, I tear down barns and I build bigger ones, you know, the guy doesn't hire a, a, a contracting crew with caterpillars and cranes. This is months and years of work he's just investing. So here's a lot more time sunk into his wealth by virtue of this building process that he's undertaken. He wastes who knows how many additional years trying to store the excess of what he has. What, what does it mean when we hoard and store the excess that God provides? It, it could mean that we're so untrusting of God's promise to provide that we feel we have to create a little of insurance of our own on the side. Now, granted, it could be that like in the story of Joseph in Genesis, God is simply giving you extra in advance of a coming famine. True enough. But before you take that approach and believe that's the situation you're in, you better have had a dream with thin cows and fat cows because that's how Joseph knew that's what God wanted him to do. 
And apart from that kind of specific direction, be careful because it's more likely the case that our flesh is driving us down that road than it is God. Now, some might say, you know, this is a reasonable approach to just being a good steward with what God gives us. I'm okay with that. I believe very strongly that we need to be a good steward with what God gives us. But the context of this story makes clear this is an excess, it's an abundance, and by the way the parable ends, it's very clear this was not what God wanted the man to do. So the test in our lives is to know the difference between whether we're being good stewards or whether we're being preoccupied. The tragic ending of this parable simply points out the foolishness of our wasting of time. The moment the guy finally gets his act together in his mind and has all his wealth where he wants it stored up, ready to make the rest of his life easy, death comes. Which is a reminder that the days are numbered. You don't know how long God does. We ought to be treating each one as our last in the sense of how we serve God. Because it very well may be. Jesus calls him a fool. Which is a term we kind of throw around loosely, but it has a specific definition in Scripture. Out of Psalms 14, it is someone who disregards God. The definition of a fool out of Scripture is someone who disregards God. Could we ever count the number of people who waste their entire life amassing a huge retirement account only to leave it to their kids? The the fact remains, you store it up, you're leaving it to somebody. But what is true, on the other hand, is you do not receive an inheritance in heaven for the work of someone else. Though you may be storing up an inheritance for the sake of someone who didn't earn it, your children, in other words, When you get to heaven, the inheritance you'll have for yourself will not come as the basis of what your parents did or someone else, only on the basis of what you did. And that's the eternal one. This is not. What if we spend every day God gave us on earth serving him without a minute's thought to whether we will find food or clothing? Can you even imagine how amazing that life would be? Uh, I mean, to be sure, we'd have a smaller house probably. We'd probably have fewer cars and maybe bad ones on top of that. We'd have a lot less fashionable clothing. Our 401Ks probably wouldn't even exist. I mean, there's no guarantee any of that just comes because the world thinks it's necessary. God may not give us any of that stuff. But on the other hand, think about how content we would be. Think about how rich we would be in our eternal blessing. Think about how pleased our Lord would be. And right about now, reality starts to sink in and we start to say, okay, but wait a minute. I can't just walk away from my job, Steve, and I don't see you doing it either. We can't just sell our homes and sell our cars and live on the street. And, you know, that's not practical. That's not realistic. Well, did Jesus say walk away from your job? Did he say sell your house? Did he, did he say have no savings? No. He says don't let the decisions you make in your life be determined by those things, though. There's a big difference between the two. I don't have to sell my house, quit my job, and, 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 and have no clothes or whatever you want in order to prove that they don't matter to me. I just have to not let my daily decisions and how I serve God be dependent on those things and whether I'll have them or not. Life is made meaningful by our opportunities to know and serve the Lord, not by what we possess. Jesus emphasizes the need to let go and trust God when he goes to the next verses. Verse 22, he said to the disciples, For this reason I say to you, do not worry about your life. As to what you will eat, nor for your body as to what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have no storeroom nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable you are than birds. And which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his lifespan? If then you cannot do even a very little thing, why do you worry about other matters? 
Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. But I tell you, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass in the field, which is alive today and tomorrow it's thrown in the furnace, how much more will he clothe you, you men of little faith? And do not seek what you will eat and what you will drink. And do not keep worrying. For all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek. But your Father knows that you need these things. And seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. You've heard many of these verses before. They're very well known. But look at how he begins it. The very first verse I just read. He begins, for this reason. For what reason? For the reason he mentioned in the preceding verses. Well, what was that? The man who spends the time God gives him on this earth storing up treasure for himself is not rich toward God. For that reason. You're not devoted to God's desires and to God's glory, but rather to, to our own desires and our own glory if we use the time God gives us storing up treasure on earth rather than serving Him in what He calls us to do. And He says, for this reason, He says, don't worry about your life. You see the point? Because serving your own earthly needs is a waste of time, for this reason, He says, don't worry about your life. Don't worry about where your ability to provide for yourself and your family is going to come from. He'll make it available. Stop worrying about it. Now. Stop. Right now. Stop worrying about it. You walked into here. I walked into here with some thought about money and the ability to provide. Some issue in our life right now, I guarantee you, it's hard to believe anybody in this church or in our world couldn't have had on their mind when they walked into this building or wherever they are today, some persistent concern over wealth, over a possession of some kind, over the ability to gain it, spend it, whatever. Stop. Just stop right now. Because if we keep worrying, we're going to return to what the man in the parable was doing. We're going to return to serving ourselves instead of serving God. Remember what we said last week, or maybe it was two weeks ago, when when we talked about fear? And you remember I said that whatever we fear most, that drives our behavior? Well, if you fear that God is not going to provide, if you fear that you're going to go without what you need, If you fear poverty, financial insecurity, the ability to retire in the life of luxury that you want, the inability to fund a four-year degree for each and every child, blah, 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 blah. If you fear those things, then what are you going to serve? You're going to serve those interests. And in serving those interests, you're serving yourself. Now, I'm not saying God can't call us to do certain things in our life, financially or otherwise, and that we shouldn't respond to that calling. Clearly, that's what we should all do. What I'm asking is, do you know if that's the calling or is it you? Is it me? Can I tell you with assurance that everything I do with my money is about answering God's calling? Yes, I can answer that with assurance. The answer is no. And until it's yes, I've got a problem. Somewhere I'm sure to where God would have put me at this point in my life had my answer been yes. And just in case, just in case you start doubting whether God is capable of providing our needs, he begins in the verses I read to make an argument from logic. It's an argument from the lesser to the greater, the style of rhetorical argument. He says, first thing to get straight here is that we aren't in control as much as we think we are. We are not in control as much as we think we are. All this worrying that we're doing to ensure we have enough money and enough stuff and a big enough house to put it all in is not accomplishing what you think it is accomplishing. That's the irony here. We're not even in control anyway. 
Think about the farmer. God had ensured that his land would provide him with an abundance. So what did his hoarding accomplish? He was already getting more than he needed from the hand of God. Nothing more that he would have had would have come except what God was providing for him. So the hoarding, was, what was the point in the hoarding? It didn't add to his, to his wealth. He was always getting an abundance from his land. And meanwhile, he wasted his life storing it up. God is in control no matter what we do. We'll only achieve what he wants us to achieve. And our wasted effort against his will is just that, wasted effort. So point number one is we aren't achieving even what we think we are achieving when we worry about our earthly needs. Second point, Jesus says you can know that God will provide because he's faithful to provide every day for billions of creatures far less valuable to him than you are and than I am. He feeds billions of birds every day. Not a single one has lifted a finger, lifted a wing, to create a plan for how they're going to survive. They give it no thought. They don't have the capacity to think about it. He brings new flowers every year, clothed in this wondrous beauty that he compares to Solomon. And they don't do a thing. They don't have to work a single day for that provision. He covers fields with grass that he says you're going to burn anyway. So why would he leave you without clothes? Are you less valuable to him than grass? That's the assumption you're making if you feel like you've got to spend extra effort to make sure you have clothes, and so on and so on. But if we leave this place and we return to our daily worry for those very things, then what does it say about our willingness to trust God and to trust his word? And as I end today, in that last verse we read, Jesus delivers what I would tell you is maybe one of the most, single most important truths out of the Bible. Maybe the most important thing we'd ever hope to understand in our walk on earth. If we spend our time and energy seeking His kingdom, which means seeking His will, seeking His will in this world and our role in providing for that will and accomplishing that will, if we seek to get in step with His plan, then He will add to our lives the basic things we need. We've got to seek Him first. Study His word. Learn His character. Understand His nature. Listen to the counsel of the Holy Spirit and then do what He tells you to do. And if what he's telling you to do flies in the face of a plan that you have for how you're going to provide for yourself, get rid of the plan. He may not bring us a mansion. He may not give us filet mignon at every meal. He's not necessarily going to bring us designer jeans or the latest toys. But he'll bring us contentment, which is worth far more than any one of those things ever could be. And he'll bring you a peace beyond anything you could possibly hope to achieve through material possessions. And he'll receive us into the kingdom with an eternal reward. Praise his name for his faithfulness. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I pray that the words I've spoken here according to your word have been the words you intended. First, Father, for me, for I know that I am guilty, Father, of the very thing that Jesus has warned us all to be wary against, and that is, Father, serving ourselves rather than serving you. How easy is it, Father, for us to see one act of service, one act of ministry in some form as excusing us from all responsibility for the rest of what we do. But it doesn't work that way, Father. I know that in my own life. I trust, Father, you've given others the same view. We don't earn our way, Father, out of an obligation to keep your word and to follow your will. But we have a daily dying to self that you call us to do. And the self that we die to in today's lesson, Father, is the self that wants to build up wealth create the appearance of security, though it is no security at all. And in spending so much time doing so, 
Leave aside all the many things you would call us to do in the building up of your kingdom. The eternal things, Father, that can build true wealth in eternity. Father, I don't know how you would have us respond each individually. I don't know, Father, what the needs are for each family here. I don't know, Father, what your desire is for them to do in your will. You know those things, of course, and you will tell them as your Holy Spirit desires. But for all, I do pray that we would have the willingness to respond, to make the hard choices, to walk away from those things that we feel we should pursue, to make those changes that the world would look at and scoff at because it makes no sense to them. That we would be bold enough, Father, to do the things you ask us to do. And then to understand that trust, Father, brings contentment. Thank you, Father, for this word today. I pray that uh, as we continue in the study next week, you would continue to bring us face to face with our greed. Even though we may not realize it is greed, Father. That we would understand that your definition of faithfulness is so much higher than that which we typically seek. Give us a heart to obey in the truest sense, Father, in all of our walk and to be a light in that way as well. Thank you for this morning, Father. Thank you for the work of your Holy Spirit. To your glory and in the name of your Son, I pray. Amen.